Hello, everybody. This is uh, Chris and Steve with Mapping Tech and Public Safety. This podcast is being recorded on uh, April 10th, 2020. I wanted to update everybody on GIS resources related to COVID-19 and also some experiences that both Steve and I have in regards to our life experiences being both in the relative hot spots of COVID-19 in Seattle, the Seattle area and New York City. So, Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. We are on week or coming, ending week four of our uh, stay at home lockdown, coming into week five. Definitely been slightly challenging, but everybody in my household is holding up pretty well, taking all most of this in stride. So it's been pretty good. Yeah, same here. Actually, I think Mike's, I'm actually, well, if you can't with quarantine, which happened in March 1st, and so I'm six weeks. <laughs> into this thing in some kind of form. You know, first two weeks being in quarantine and coming back and getting, going back on the line at the fire station responding to COVID calls. And actually that, that thing is definitely interesting as far as night and day between how we responded before and how we responded after this event. Before was definitely just your bread and butter, fighting fire, putting band-aids on people. And afterwards, the focus has been on incident safety, so managing infectious substances, and decon. I mean, we are basically, we are responding like it's a big hazmat incident. We have different outfits that we wear for medical calls. We're wearing, actually, we wear coveralls, gowns, and eye protection gowns and gloves and masks. Some departments are wearing full Tyvek suits with respirators. I, I think we're kind of in between. We have a decon station at each hospital where we can go, and when we leave the hospital, we run our, our aid cars through. Uh, these stations just like a decon line at a hazmat incident so it's it's definitely different fortunately i you know i feel like it's going to be temporary but it's definitely an experience and especially the exposure we've had with the the huge uptick in covid cases but now actually in my area we're actually kind of flattening out or leveling down a little bit as far as covid cases there's some light at the end of the tunnel it seems like i don't want to cross cross our fingers hope it goes well but i think it's i think we're kind of getting towards the not the end of this, but I'm feeling more comfortable than I did before. So that's, that's a good thing. It's funny because I didn't realize this at the time, but like during September 11th, when I responded to the trade center, yeah. I kind of try to compare the two incidents a little bit. Uh-huh. The biggest difference is I'm retired now. I'm not in the, the mix of response. As much as New York State is asking for retirees to come back, I passed on that opportunity because I just don't want to be exposed to this and potentially bring it home to my family. Mm-hmm. I try to think back to, I was right in the mix of ground zero and right. what people felt being in the background. You know, so many people wanted to help and, and felt kind of powerless that they couldn't do anything. That's kind of like my role now. I'm not in that mix. So it's like one of the reasons why I've been trying to do some behind the scenes GIS work. to to help out my local community. It's a little bit different for me having that change of roles now. And and the other thing that I've kind of like really noticed with this, I've even seen it in my kids. What are we fearful of? My point is like you go outside and it's nothing. It's nice out and Mm -hmm. you're going for walks and everything else. Unfortunately, you don't know where this virus is and what surface it's possibly living in. It's kind of like a weird incident. Like it's not something a terrorist attack or a natural disaster where there's physical damage and and you're going into 
in response to helping people. It's kind of different. I, it I, is, yeah. I, say. I, I agree with you. It's, it's kind of weird because on one hand, first of all, I'm surprised I didn't get infected. Honestly, that I mean, the incident I responded to and the incident that we all responded to, I mean, I can't go into detail, but I, I definitely was exposed. There was no doubt that the exposure potential was pretty high on the first call. And I've had subsequent calls and unfortunately it was more well, well more protected, but I had one instance where I, with allergies, you get kind of sick with headache and stuff like that. One day I had an onset of a new symptom and I didn't have a fever, didn't have a dry cough, but I did have a really bad headache that kind of gave me some aches. And I got tested again and I was still negative. And I mean, even with everything going around, it's nice that, that you still can avoid some of the I mean, I, I don't know, it's a fluke how I did it, but a lot of us, a lot of people still find that most people get tested, tested negative. So that's, that's positive. And then a lot of folks that test positive, they're just mildly sick and still predominantly seems to be towards the medically impaired and elderly, which is, is terrible. It, it is kind of a reassuring thought that if you do get sick with it, you might be, you're likely going to be okay. Tell us a little bit what's been going on out there and, and let's discuss how different or the differences between the Washington state area and New York. Yeah. So I, you know, I think the big difference is we actually had the first case of COVID happen from a, uh, a traveler from China, got admitted to Providence Hospital in mid-January and was tested positive. He recovered from it. And then somewhere along the lines that the, the disease got transmitted through various sources and basically between January and February, this is my personal suspicion. I think a lot of people probably were sick with COVID and didn't realize it. There was a lot of people that were sick with the flu-like symptoms. There's a lot of people that had the flu, got tested for flu and didn't really have it. So they just thought they were normally ill. I had plus, a lot of, plus they're saying you could carry it and be asymptomatic. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, my suspicion is, and it's just a suspicion, there's going to be smarter people that are going to deal with this. In the end, then we were probably dealing with the pandemic long before the realization happened. I think that happens normally anyway. When you have a mini flu pandemic or a little epidemic, locally, you have it actually happening long before it's actually recognized. Then it got noticed heavily in Kirkland, my department, towards the end of February at a, at a nursing home. Uh, I keep on calling it Lakeview Gardens, but it's Life Care Center of Kirkland. It, it, the name changed. I, I'm used to the formal name. And that's where it really blew and took off. And it didn't take off there per se, but that's where it really got noticed. And actually, one of the guys I work with, he's you know, honestly, to me personally, I think he, he should be credited with a lot. He recognized the pattern, addressed it, brought it up, and then hugely advocated for a rapid change of what's going on. If he didn't, as a, he's a lieutenant Fire Station 20. I won't use his name yet because I didn't really ask for permission, but you know, the, the guy really stepped up and, and knew that, and he's a bulldog kind of personality anyway. The guy recognized the problem, and like the next day, literally like the CDC and high-level people were on a conference call with us, like discussing what's going on, and you know, if it wasn't for his actions, and his actually continuing actions, he's kind of taking a leadership role with this. I, I don't think it would have, I think it might have happened differently. I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, but he, he did a, it took really one guy to like address this and make, make things happen in my opinion. Um, so I ended up being in quarantine with the guy for two weeks. We talked quite a bit about it, but anyway, we had a huge ramp up of responses, especially at that 
that nursing home and also other places as well. That nursing home definitely had a lot of, that was definitely an epicenter. Other places that had COVID, I don't think the rate was extreme, but definitely it, it existed. Right now, especially with our response posture, we're, we're still responding to COVID cases. It, it seems a little, some say that this is like the calm before a second wave. It could be, or it could be just a little off. I don't know. But it does feel like it's tapering off for us a little bit as far as our posture and the calls. And actually, what's weird is the few shifts just recently before, we actually were kind of quiet throughout the day. The calls we had were significant calls, but they were COVID calls. And that's really all we kind of had, which is sad. But the other typical calls we had, the fire alarms, the structure fires, the car accidents, we didn't have those. Now, the last shift I worked, actually, we were really busy with all the other calls we had. I don't know if that's going to change or if that's the perception I have, but you know, I do feel like that the it was a smart move to not call it flattening the curve, but basically just shelter in place and just chill out and relax for a little bit, let this thing settle out, and reduce the load on public safety as a whole. Because the calls we we had were were different and significant, but we weren't busy responding to a bunch of other calls. We were able to focus on these uh, high acuity calls and deal with those. So it made a difference. It was a smart move on whoever's decision was to implement that. And it was a lot of people's decision, but it was good. Now, so anyway, I think, cross my fingers, we're hoping at the tail end of things. How's, you're, you're, you know, the contrast is weird is because we were first, but you're hip deep into it over in New York. So how, how are things going over there? The numbers are rising rapidly. They've actually been saying on the news that it, it seems to be getting less slightly. It's still bad here. They're trying to look at it positively where people coming into the hospital with these types of symptoms is declining. Death rate is going up and up. Some all-time highs. I believe it was on Monday they had the highest death rate. It was around 1,200 in, in a day. Wow. Well, actually, no, maybe not that many. Uh, I think it was under 1,000. Uh-huh. Set another record the following day. And it's kind of like how this started. The numbers weren't too bad until people started getting tested. And, and then it started spreading more. They are saying the, the curve is flattening a bit, but they're still seeing the high death rate because now these people have been sick for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, so now that the death rate is starting to climb, a little depressing. And honestly, I think not just New York, I think all over the country, it still amazes me that some states aren't doing it. I think they should have implemented this stay at home social distancing right away. Yeah. And, yeah. and quite honest, if we ever see another pandemic like this again, or, or if it kind of goes away in the summer months and comes back during the, the next set of winter months, I, I think you're going to see that like instantaneous, like, you know, those stay at home orders. Um, yeah. And admittedly, it's probably a good thing. We're actually practicing it now if we have to do it again. Yeah. And businesses are doing it again, practicing it. It's unfortunate. You know, I got a senior in high school. She's not too happy with this thing, but we'll be conditioned to it if we have to do it again. Exactly. Let's talk about some GIS resources. Yeah. There's been a ton of webinars and emails and listservs and people looking for data and people providing data, providing different web maps. Yeah, this is what happens when you stick the whole country with a computer, Zoom, and the ability to make web maps. You get a ton of them. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some are pretty good. Some are like, oh, okay. <laughs> There's definitely a, a predominance of or predominance of thought as fire. What's a good thing to do? So, well, I've been kind of in the same boat, like what you mentioned in our episode a few weeks ago. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm definitely watching a, not, a lot of Netflix, binge watching shows, but you I'm want- trying not to waste all my time doing that and be productive. Did and- you watch Tiger King yet? I did. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about old. somebody that should have had a stay-at-home order a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> we could do a podcast on that one. <laughs> I've been like looking at different websites, getting information from a lot of webinars. I, I've been listening to webinars while I'm doing my, my regular job. Some of them are you know, definitely great resources from ESRI. One of the things I want to talk about with you, Chris, is on Esri's COVID-19 response GIS hub, they have the what they call the five steps to COVID-19 response. Yeah. And the five steps are map the cases, map the spread, map vulnerable populations, map your capacity, and communicate with maps. Let's start at number one, map the cases. That's one of the things, like, we try to start at the local level to map them. And we did some mapping, like, in in Kirkland, in terms of, like, mapping where the location of, like, the hotspots were. And actually, we mentioned in the last podcast, it'd be nice to map the look the, the number of cases per county level because our original podcast we said that we only find things things uh, data at the state level and then lo and behold two days later we started seeing some county level data one thing that was kind of interesting related to that was that each state has different reporting requirements and so the data at the county level across the country is sort of hit and miss as far as consistency but the, it was determined that it was better to have more granular data and maybe not as accurate than to just keep it at the state level. So I think you're finding that definitely mapping the cases, even at the county level, or if you can at the local level, and some departments are doing that where they're mapping a hotspot data at the local level. And you kind of guess where they're at. They're usually at elderly people live and perhaps some lower demographic cases. I think mapping the cases so that you get a sense of trend of where where problem is at is very helpful. It's funny that we, we did speak about that in the last episode, but it's very true that granularity of data. And one of the things that I've been hearing was that the department of health organizations, whether it be federal or, or state or local, they were very hesitant to give out that information due to mm-hmm. HIPAA and patient confidentiality, which honestly is, just really not a concern. You take that data and aggregate it up to some sort of area, whether it be yeah. for the state, county, zip code, census tract. Yeah, you can even and, do the U.S. National Grid with that. You have a map it at that level. You're not going to be violating too much in HIPAA. A few weeks ago, we, we talked about getting that data down to the county level. But now the way this virus has spread, even the county level isn't the best information. That's true. Yeah. Having it down to the community, municipality, census tract, merge it into national grid is is really where this data needs to be. I think there's a good couple of use cases for that. One on the shelter in place side, if you determine a hotspot 
location. Like the state of Washington is, everybody's shelter in place right now, but law enforcement or the authorities can't enforce that very well unless they have a pretty good idea of where that problem is. Just like a wildfire, you, you do need sort of like a fire perimeter of like where your problem is so that you can send resources. In this case, it could be law enforcement like, hey, you need to maybe patrol a little extra in this place to get people to like spread out a bit. Identify that this is a hot spot for, for this virus. The other thing is if you're going to staff up extra rigs, which we definitely did, um, you want to put them right in the middle of it instead of assume that everything's being equal because we don't have, nobody has infinite resources to deal with this. If you identify those key areas where you need to address resources, you need that information mapped. And so sometimes I, I think you need to get past the hurdle of HIPAA and just recognize that this is not an individual disease. This is just like a wildfire. That kind of goes into the number two point on Esri's website is map the spread. Yeah. Having that granularity of data. When all this broke out, I saw this time enabled map that you could drag the slider and it was showing it by country. I've even seen some now where the data is time enabled and you're seeing it by state. Mm -hmm. Mapping that spread at a state level just isn't good information now no, at this point. No. Coming back to that granularity of data, you, you need it at, at a local level. And whatever that level may be, that's what you need it at. And to be quite honest, I, the other thing I've been noticing too is consistency yeah. in that local level data. You know, New York City has now started making available public data by zip code. Mm -hmm. But in Nassau County, they're going by the municipalities. You have to have some sort of consistency. I don't know who would make this happen, whether it be the states or just the different counties getting together and say, okay, this is what we're going to go by. Yeah. We're going to map it by zip code, or we're going to map it by neighborhood, or we're going to map it by census tract. Yeah. Because my county borders New York City. And on the east side, my county borders Suffolk County. If you want to really map that spread, you need all this in a common data set. I'm kind of torn about this because you're being tested with COVID twice. Actually, my health records released, or not my health record, but my te first test released to the media, I kind of felt a little, perhaps my privacy was violated a little bit. But on the flip side, I also think that it's important to recognize that my anonymity died down a bit the more people got tested. So perhaps my individual, it should be kind of somewhat public, just recognize that yeah, it's okay to release this because I want to get a pattern so everybody else can be saved. I guess the message is, the long-winded way is that maybe being granular about where COVID cases are is not a bad thing. Exactly. I, I could be swayed either way, but you know, the more granular you get, perhaps it could be just that the public health level, they keep that data private and then their actions or decisions are made based on that granular data. Perhaps not releasing it to the public, but getting granular so you can see where the spread is. I think right. it's a good thing. The next step is map vulnerable populations. And I've seen quite a few maps about this. I've thought about stuff like this, but not in a pandemic situation. We had worked on taking census data at one point and overlaying that with flood zones. So what type of populations would, you, would be affected during a hurricane? Mm -hmm. But the maps that I've been seeing now, I think are incredible. But looking at vulnerable populations, meaning the elderly and social vulnerability, socioeconomic status, 
And maps that I've seen now, you do see a trend of higher outbreaks in poorer neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. I don't have reasons why that's happening. I'm not sure if it's just that they're not maintaining social distancing, they yeah. didn't have health care. Obviously, health care is not free, but due to the pandemic, people are getting tested even if they don't have health care. Yeah. Maybe that's the reasoning. But I found it definitely interesting. They're identifying spots like Florida, for instance, where a lot of the state is elderly because that's where people go to in their retirement years because yeah. of the warm weather. And they're more susceptible to, to catching this virus compared to somebody younger. Sure. So, so you could definitely see it's getting bad down there because of, of the more elderly population down there. This is all data that's freely available. And during a, a pandemic like this, it's stuff that data that you could easily get and start looking at these factors. Yeah. If people were looking at these factors early on, Florida was one of, not one of the last states, because there are some states that haven't issued stay-at-home orders yet, but they were on the back end of issuing that order. And maybe if they would have seen this data, they would have said, hey, we, we got to do this early. Yeah, totally. I, I wish I would research that beforehand, whether their rates and their numbers are what their numbers are. I, it does make sense. I kind of consider it sort of a, it's a fire line issue. So if you have a path or spread, that's going to go to certain demographics and certain populations, you could perhaps quarantine or contain that area a little bit better and focusing on that a little bit. And I could see some places where it's geographically spread out. You have a little bit less of an effort because, you know, you're not going to have that spread because they're, huh, they're probably social distancing naturally anyway. I've seen that too, where you look at some of these Midwestern states where it's mostly farmland, you're not seeing a lot of cases there. Going back to like some of these Southern states, you're seeing spreads. There's like Florida refused to close the beaches. Everybody was down there partying for... The spring break, these kids thinking they weren't going to be vulnerable yeah. to catching this. And, and now you're starting to see that. And same thing in Louisiana with Mardi Gras. Yeah, they didn't close Mardi Gras, which that seemed, I don't I don't like talking my opinion, but that, that does seem pretty silly to me. Somebody could have made a better decision on that one, I think. So, yeah, but I mean, it was, it was early on and yeah. you knew how rapidly and how bad it was going to get. That's true. There's a balance to that. You cancel something, you're canceling your economy. And that's kind of a one global thing. So there's a balance between managing a huge risk like this and then killing the economy, which will have side effects down the road as far as health and welfare as well. I'm glad I'm not in a position to really have to make those decisions. I do recognize that. You know, there was a balance between shutting everything down. Taiwan, for example, they didn't shut that country down. Their their rates are extremely low, and they could see China. They implemented measures that kept their economy and their public going. And I think there was an interesting Sky News article about it, as far as you know, how they were able to maintain such a low rate. And you know, they have some restrictive testing and some temperature. You can't get into any place without getting your temperature taken. And in hindsight, maybe that's what works type things. So I don't know. But anyway, kind of getting to our, our fourth bullet point is like know your capacity or map your capacity. And I think this is a big one. Yeah. Right I, I, from a public safety perspective, this yeah. is big. Yeah. And it, that includes, I, I think that like a lot of the articles I read were map the capacity of the hospitals because that's kind of simple, but it's also mapping capacity of transport, the level of resources required to deal with people in the community on the first responder side, articulating your capability 
from, and also maintaining your existing services. Like for example, my department, we became, we had a spur where we were maintaining, we became basically a COVID transport agency. And honestly, I had, my, I had a fire last set. I'm mean, oh, this seemed, that fire seemed a lot different because it was just unique because I was so conditioned to like responding to these COVID cases and these sick people. And then I had a fire and it just, it personally, I felt a lot different. And I was first sitting on this fire. So I, it was my fire, but it was just odd. We all thought the same thing. It's like set up command, do this and, you know, go through the whole thing. You have to be cognizant of that. You still have to know your capacity to handle your other stuff. And also in addition to mapping or handling this, this large stuff, honestly, getting back to flattening the curve a bit, the idea of sheltering in place helped manage those resources. So it, it may not be, the answer may not be to ramp up resources in your department, maybe to like get everybody to calm down, chill out a little bit in place so that we could handle this other stuff. But I think knowing, having that information mapped and articulating it in a way that's usable is, is very important. Yeah. And the one thing I do want to give a little bit of a warning about, I mentioned in the last episode about trying to find locations of testing sites. I was struggling trying to find a list of them, particularly here in New York. Somebody steered me towards the GIS core. They actually have a layer that they're sharing with with all the mobile testing sites locations. Yeah. That's part of mapping your capacity. But the one thing you have to be careful of when you put that on a map and put it out there is you should have warnings. Like you can't just go to one of these testing sites and get tested. You have to be exhibiting symptoms. I think you have to call and make an appointment and then mm -hmm. go down on my map that I created. I, I put that in there. This is who you call. And the, yeah, these are the sites, but you can't just go down there and get tested. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was kind of a, it was tough. And I'm, part of it was probably the hysteria related to this. If you felt like a little tickle in your throat, that was, oh, I got to get tested now. That could be perhaps, I don't know. And even in my case, you know, I had a headache. And since I was a first responder, it didn't make sense. If I were, let's put it this way. I think that the line I drew in my head was, uh, we actually had separate testing capability for first responders in King County. But I had a change in symptoms. I should get tested, not because I want to know if I'm sick, but because I just worked with my crew and I have this headache that's unusual. And we needed to know so that, we could figure out what to do with my crew. And that was probably the, the, the tough part is like, oh man, I, I, I was kind of frustrated because I didn't want to be that guy that came to work and was sick and exposed my crew to, and threw them out of service because that impacted their family and their life as well. So I didn't want to be that guy. But fortunately it was negative and fortunately there was no impact to anybody else I was working with. Great point. Yeah. The fifth step is communicate with maps. And, and we talk about this on, on almost every episode, but there's so many web-based maps out there. And that's how you could get this information out there with, with interactive web maps, where you could pan around or the, the case of the mobile testing sites. I created a web map. It's a real simple map. It has all the points there yeah. of the sites, but you could type in your address. It puts a circle around whatever address you type in yeah. and it, by default, it buffers it by 10 miles and then selects the mobile testing sites near you. I also created another one for hospital locations. The purpose of the map is it's supposed to be simple. There's not a lot of data on there, just 
the mobile testing sites, type in your address and you can find the ones that are closest to you. My point is, is that it's better to have multiple different web maps that absolutely have a purpose rather than having one map with everything squished in there. Yeah. Um, and that's perhaps one of my mild complaints about the John Hopkins dashboard, even though it's, it's super awesome, but they, everything's on there or as to a certain point, and, but it is pretty complex and some yeah. other ones are pretty complex and it's pretty good in terms of looking at it and diving through the data and, and kind of, get the sense of what's going on. I, I like, uh, there's one that's, that's not a, it's an open source map from nexttrain.org. And they have an animation of where the, the, the virus has traveled, but for actionable stuff, the first responder level or the public level, I'm with you, Steve, keeping it as simple as possible and focus on a particular goal, whether it's, it, this is a map with testing sites and this is the closest one to you or this is the hot spot of where this virus is spreading and we need to make a decision based on spread, keeping it simple that way, just focusing the decision on that. That's actually the task. We even discussed that in the symbology work group and, and even the, a lot of the NAPSIC exercises that we do is the biggest failing of a lot of exercises. I want everything on the map and I'll just figure it out. Right. Well, whenever I hear that, that's just an automatic fail to me because you can look at it and everybody will look at it, look at it differently. But having just a simple, single focus, single mission dashboard, web map, you know, very simple symbology is where I think a lot of things need to go. Yeah. And the, the other thing that I've been noticing in maps that I've been looking at online, the other thing I'm kind of, I don't know the right word here, but I'll, I'll go with disappointed is I really think municipalities should be getting together at this point. Yeah. In other words, this is a global pandemic, but let, let's just focus on the U.S. Yeah. And even at the state level, like I could search for New York State COVID maps and I'm finding ones for counties upstate. I'm finding one for Suffolk County out on eastern Long Island, obviously New York City. I really think at least at the state level, they should have like all these different maps brought together. Right? That would kind of look at it where I could compare New York City and is that spread coming into New York, into Nassau County b because of the high cases in, yeah. in New York. Yeah. Rather than looking at all these individual county maps, you want to have information on your county's website, but have that link to the statewide map instead of having all these individual maps with the same data, but just specific to their counties. Yeah, um, that was something else I would kind of like see changed in the future. And again, that's not just for a pandemic. I mean, Hurricane Sandy affected multiple counties here in New York and New Jersey. Starting to see this data brought together in a common area, I think would help out. I absolutely agree. I think perhaps like after this is all or when this whole thing settled out, I honestly think public health needs to look maybe adopt kind of a similar model to what the National Wildlife wildland coordinating group has done is adopt some kind of basic generic standards for GIS in terms of public health. Because from my perspective, this event is very analogous to big wildland fire. It's just international, but it's a spreading contagion, just like a spreading wildfire. And so I think looking at the attributes and things related to this have a lot of similarities. So perhaps those folks need to get together and have, kind of adopt sort of a similar model 
that the wildland folks have. Yeah. Some of the maps that I have seen out there and some of the applications, but one of the things I thought the organization did very well was the International Association of Fire Chiefs. Yeah, they did a great job. Yeah. They put out this survey to identify fire departments who had personnel come down with, with COVID-19. And, you know, it just kind of goes to my point. They weren't looking at one specific area, whether it be a county or a neighborhood. They were looking at it nationally and they put it out. And I hate to say, unfortunately, here on Long Island, I keep checking the maps. I, I don't see a lot of input. It's probably just because of the spread of word. People don't know about yeah. it. Yeah. But they didn't focus on one specific area. They didn't focus on Washington because that was the first state. Or right. They didn't focus on New York because it's the worst state. But they looked at it from a nationwide level. They're trying to get the word out to fire departments. Please fill out this survey and, and let's get the data in. That's the perfect example right there. Yeah. Not just focusing on one area. And you, you could see the impact on the fire service. Absolutely. Let's just wrap up this episode real quick with some some resources. The National Alliance for Public Safety, GIS, why don't you talk a little bit about their resources? Yeah, so basically NAPSIG's done a really good job maintaining a running list of different resources. And a lot of it's the stuff we've talked about, but there's some other resources, including do just a couple things, but this is going to be constantly updated. And we'll put this, if you do the, go to the website, NAPSIG, N-A-P-S-G, foundation.org. On the top of their website, there's a resource list that you can click to. And there's a bunch of resources that different groups and agencies have developed, and including the um, International Association of Fire Chiefs Service and ESRI's uh, information as well. Basically, there's a whole list of resources that are very usable and easy to use. One of the things that's really kind of neat is uh, FEMA, if you're an agency or a, a group that doesn't really have GIS access, you can kind of start using, they have a, a free access to Esri software for about six months. FEMA is not advocating for the use of Esri. It just so happens that's what they use. You use the licensing for about six months, which it's kind of expensive licensing, but you, it basically requests assistance for the COVID-19 response package. And that way you can get some of this data into uh, a GIS format and shareable to other other agencies. One of the Esri public safety webinars that I listened to with Ryan Lanclose and Jeff Barani, one of the questions that came up and Ryan, I thought, answered it very well. If you do reach out to ESRI to utilize their six months worth of free software, they're encouraging that and they're encouraging municipalities to contribute to the data. But they do recognize that if you after the six months, or if they possibly extend it, that the data is still yours. You're not signing it over to Esri. That data is yours, whether you decide to buy their software or not. So yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a very good point. The other thing I want to mention, Chris, is that we constantly do this. We kind of focus on fire and EMS because those are our backgrounds. But on the NAPSIC website, Similar to what the International Association of Fire Chiefs has pushed out, the National Police Foundation has also pushed out similar apps and, and maps, trying to map officers and law enforcement personnel that have been affected. So that's on their website as well. And then the last set of resources I just wanted to mention from ESRI. So if you Google 
ESRI COVID-19 GIS hub on their webpage. They have a d- lot of different maps, including the John Hopkins map. If you can't find that just through some Google searches, which you should be able to, but it's everywhere. Yeah. And there is a link on that page along with other dashboards, such as the COVID-19 public health emergency status, the surveillance dashboard, all sorts of different web maps and dashboards. There's a good one that I'm looking at right now called the definitive healthcare U.S. hospital beds showing the amount of hospitals and ICU beds and their staffing. Mm-hmm. They show the social vulnerability map. If you're not a GIS person and you're just looking for some of these resources, they're very easy to find. Along with putting this on our blog, some links to these, we'll also put it in the show notes on the podcast. You can easily click on this and start finding some of these resources out there. I think that's pretty good for today. And we're going to increase the frequency of our podcasts a little bit to pass on some of this information. This information is constantly changing, which is kind of a neat and exciting in terms of technical time because there's a bit of innovation happening. We'll do our best to update the audience in terms of emerging GIS tools that we can be useful for public safety. For what it's worth, give some of our thoughts about it as well. Chris and I had discussed, we've been trying to get this podcast out monthly. We Sometimes don't do such a great job of that. But what we'd like to do is at least put out like a 15-minute episode just to discuss some of the changes and resources that are out there to to help our audience. We'll go ahead and sign off from here. So thank you for your time and stay safe. This is Chris and Steve. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mapping Tech and Public Safety. Please visit our blog at mappingtechandpublicsafety.com.